Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This episode of The Bib Show is brought to you by Bridge Street Capital Partners. Bridge Street is a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital markets transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in the mining, energy, and tech sectors. If you are a Section 708 sophisticated investor and would like to be on Bridge Street's distribution list for their upcoming capital raisings, send them an email with your details to info at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and mention the BIP show in your message. And now, on with the show. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder that all the financial information in this podcast is general in nature only. Speak to a professional advisor about your needs. I'm Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group. And one of those professional advisors that you might speak to about your needs is James Whelan. How are you, James? How are you now, Paul? I'm pretty good. Ken Vexler is off this week um, with time zones and kids. James, it has been, we're still in lockdown. And it, are we still in lockdown? Yes, we are, mate. Um, and you've got to follow the rules. So well, tell me. Yeah, mate, putting it mildly, it has, it has been a long two months. Um, the Goldilocks lockdown of <laughs> lockdown too soft and now lockdown too hard. People are looking for a glimpse of light at the end of the tunnel, I think you could say. I, myself, am running on memes at the moment. Uh, who isn't? That's basically been the thing that's been propping us up for the last year and a half. I was reminded of one, anyone who's seen Rogue One, um, there's a scene where, where, where Darth Vader is, is hidden away and uh, and then all of a sudden his lightsaber comes on and, and you know, sort of leading into, leading into what would be the start of New Hope where he... He butchers a whole lot of people with his lightsaber. You can't see him. And, and, and the, 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 the caption of the meme says, uh, <laughs> it, it says, they tell me that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And <laughs> then I find out that this is the light. <laughs> it's just Darth Vader standing there with his, with his lightsaber. It, sometimes it does feel a little bit like that. So look, we, we're trying to stick to the positive on this one because there, it, it could be a bit glum. And so taking a new tack. This week, and it's a topic that I don't think a lot of Australians would be too familiar with. Uh, he says, tongue firmly in cheek. Our guest this week is Adelaide Timbrell, senior economist at ANZ Research with a focus on housing, retail trade, and naturally, Aussie household wellbeing, which is very important, very important now. Something that I hope that we dig into later. Thank you for joining us, Adelaide. Welcome to the Bit Show. Thank you. Super excited to be chatting to you guys about the economy today. It's uh, it's 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 a great day outside. I'm sure I would uh, love to be able to see it, but just as uh, just as good is uh, is sitting here talking about this stuff with you and Paul too. So uh, now straight into it. Big news this week, Adelaide from uh, from you this week. Uh, a blindingly bullish call on Australian housing for 2021. 20 
Does that is that written right? Twenty percent growth and change in prices, which is I'll take a twenty. I'll take half that. It's great, uh, which is big in anyone's language, given that we look like we're dangerously close to tipping into another technical recession. Are we allowed to use that word, Paul? Check. Uh, well, uh, what is behind this? Do you want to stretch that out a little bit, Adelaide? Absolutely. So, yeah, look, 20% housing price growth in a single year sounds really bullish. It sounds really strong. We've got to remember, though, that from the start of the year to the end of July, we've actually already seen 14% house price growth. So, you know, another 6% for the for the last four months, uh, four or five months of the year um, you know, it is a lot definitely compared to, you know, what you consider a, a normal year for housing. But um, considering how we've been going in the first half of this year, it, it actually in some ways the next 12 to 18 months does represent a slowdown. So we're thinking 20% of this year and then just 7% next year. Um, the reason for this is um, comes from a few different, different places. Um, but basically, there's certain parts of the COVID experience that we've been in the last 18 months that has actually given a group of people a lot more um, cash uh, and a lot more uh, borrowing capacity um, to be able to get a nice big home loan. So, mm. um, you know, when we look back at the last housing boom, it was really all about investors getting into the market and pushing up prices. Uh, lots of investors at the auction making things super expensive. But over the course of, of this year so far, there has been some investor activity, but really the, the craziness of the housing boom over the last 12 months has more been from upgraders and first home buyers. So people buying a home that they plan to live in rather than you know what they plan to use as an income stream. So the people that have upgraded, so second home or you know third home or whatever, um, they are, because of the large housing boom, much more likely to be 35 plus, much more likely to be higher income, much more likely to be in the kind of industry where when a global pandemic hits... Wait, 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 compared to what? Compared to the average person in Australia um, who's living in their own, you know, living outside of their parents' home. So... When we look at the people who lost their jobs during COVID, it was young people, it was renters, um, it was, you know, part-time workers, casual workers, people in hospitality, people with lower incomes. And then on the other side, the people who kept their jobs were more likely to already own a home, more likely to be in a high-income area. Um, and this is something that's particularly given the last 10 years of housing price growth, it's the people that were already locked out of the market that actually then also lost their jobs in COVID. Whereas the people who got in at kind of early in the market because they were at the right age or the right income or the right deposit, um, you know, to buy a home sometime in the last, uh, you know, eight or 15 or 20 years, uh, these are the people who ha are more likely to have even more cash than usual. So we were locked at home last year. We couldn't spend any money. If you kept your income, that means you've got more cash. Um, whereas if you lose your job, obviously that's not the case. And then if you're already a homeowner, you've also saved some dollars on the mortgage because your interest rate has gone down. But if you're a renter, um, interest rates haven't really had as much of an impact on your life because you don't have 500 grand um, in mortgage debt. So all of this has come together to mean that people who already owned a home beforehand have put way more money into the housing market. They're also spending a lot more time at home. So suddenly needing an extra bedroom for a home office has become really important and um, we are continuing to see this particularly with really really low interest rates meaning you can borrow a lot and in a weird way the Sydney lockdown has probably even pushed up housing prices a little bit more because it's delayed 
the interest rate rise and it's delayed any controls that APRA might put on to make borrowing harder. Um, but if you're not in a lockdown city, uh, it has no impact on your own financial uh, situation, but then you don't have to worry about higher interest rates for a longer time. Everything to this point looks to me like it's fine and there's absolutely no reason to be worried about structural issues. But do you think that the recovery is locked in? Do you think how we think about the recovery, should we be reviewing our views on the snapback? Um, And do you think Delta introduces a new dampening dynamic, basically, to what we've experienced before? Look, I think it's pretty fair to say that Delta has really, you know, put a spanner in the works and it has changed everything. Um, at the moment, you know, fiscal support's nice and strong. We know from ANZ spending data that once uh, a city is out of lockdown, not only do they spend as much as they would normally, but they actually go way above the national average for spending um, to kind of make up for lost time. Uh, and that is something that really goes to you know, stronger consumer confidence than what we saw last year. Um, We've also, you know, the thing about the lockdowns in Delta is that we didn't start in the same position coming into these current lockdowns as we did last year, you know, for example, you know, last year there were all of these um, businesses and workers who were really relying on international tourism in order to run their business. But that's not something that has really been the case this year because we've already gone through that transition. It's the same thing with remote working. You know, there were all these businesses that had to transition to allow uh you know, some kind of productivity um, when no one is in a room together. But, you know, a year and a half later, although we've all still had our problems with, you know, Zoom and Microsoft Teams and all of that, we're much further along that path. And that does make the economy uh, a little bit more resilient. Can I ask you um, what your view is on this? Like um, what in terms of productivity? Because it's a huge question. And frankly, I'm pretty bearish on productivity in terms of like when it comes to people working from home. So I'd love to hear your perspective. Yeah, like I think there's there is a, a real transition period for people who aren't used to remote working to kind of get into it and build up to, you know, having productivity. For some people it's totally fine. You know, anecdotally I know there are quite a few uh, introverts around who find that they really get a lot more done at home. But for every one of those... But for any one of those, it's also, you know, people that either go crazy because it's too quiet or they don't have someone to talk to. Certainly a lot of junior employees face, you know, really unique challenges where usually you kind of learn by osmosis in a lot of, you know, professional services and knowledge-based work. You know, you, you hear how someone handles a problem in the desk next to you or you ask someone something and it is a little bit harder to do that if you are working remotely. So there, there are those challenges there and I think expecting productivity to be exactly the same, um, you know, during that transition period is, is a little unrealistic. On the other hand, you know, you can waste time from anywhere. Um, we, we can't okay. pretend that people can work <laughs> in offices nine to five. We're working, you know, perfectly nine to five. I mean, yeah. you know, you only have to De- walk around any office to see that there's going to be a bit of texting in one corner or Facebook in another corner or some coffee breaks, you know. That's yeah. that's all just part of normal life, right? So, yeah, I, I am the, I, uh, Annoyingly, I'm the most productive when I'm when I'm travelling, when I'm moving. Uh, I, a, stagnant, a stagnant water stinks. 
I get more done from my phone sitting in the Qantas lounge than, than or just when you're waiting to, 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 to take off sitting on the plane. I get more done in that time than I do just sitting at my desk staring at the screen thinking, oh, well, BHP looks up and down. Funny, and funny that you said that, Paul, actually, and we'll just, yeah, just just, just give me a sec. The, uh, the, but Paul actually mentioned something. I wonder if Adelaide, I'll just bounce this off here. He says that working at home is is okay and it's good and it's, and it's fine, but it's difficult to start new things when when we're all in this WFH um, scenario. Do, what do you, like, off the cuff, what, what do you think of that with regards to productivity, with regards to innovation, with regards to moving forward as as sure. As a planet, as a country, not to make it too broad a statement. There. Yeah, look, I think um, you know having new employees is a really perfect example of that. Yeah, it's really hard to bring someone into a team. You know, as much as um, you know, there's so many you know different ways that you can break the ice with a team or whatever. I think we all know that going out for a coffee break or going out for you know getting on the wines after work—that's the kind of thing that brings teams together, and that really has those productivity improvements over time. Having that tight knit team, so definitely bringing new people into an environment can be difficult. Change management has its own um, downsides as well. But I think we also, if we take a really long term view, you know, um, hot desking and open plan offices this kind of trend um, all of the research shows that it's been terrible for productivity so you know if we can uh, in the longer term in the future look at ways to make sure people do have the resources and space they need to work remotely then we kind of come back to that you know personal office space which really a lot of the research shows is a lot better than open plan particularly when we look at the way that the structure of uh, knowledge-based work has changed, office-based work has actually skewed more and more towards uh, quiet um, individual work rather than collaborative work. So the average person 10 years ago, 20 years ago, was spending more time in meetings doing collaborative work and the <laughs> average person now is spending more time alone doing quiet work and that was you know, pre-COVID and post-COVID. Now, Adelaide, I will just throw to you a, a, an important point in just one second. Uh, straight after this, Bridge Street Capital Partners is a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specialises in equity capital markets, transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in the mining, energy and tech sectors. Sophisticated investors who want to hear about Bridge Street's upcoming capital raises can send their details to info at bridgestreetcapital.com. Dot .au. Uh, and that's how you read a bit of copy there, Paul. Now, Adelaide, there was um, uh, the, the, the note just sort of coming off the back of what Paul said uh, just then. There is a huge, and I, and I saw this too, that people looking at the at the re, at the employment numbers, not necessarily unemployment numbers, but the employment numbers, as in people who are at home, sitting at home. Um, now, you, we can duck and weave this if you want, but, but the people who are at home who are thinking, I can't go back to work because I've got these I've got these kids here and they can't go to school and that's it. Uh, it, it factoring in factoring in the numbers there, how important actually is it to get kids back to school? And I'm sort of giving you the easy, the easy question. How important is it to get kids back to school so that we can all get back employed as much and, and, and get back to sort of that foolish employment that we're still striving for? Yeah, look, I think it's really important to get kids back to school and this is something that, you know, is important both for parents and children, you know, that socialisation and also, you know, the, the ability to be in a home office um, where you can focus on work. I think this is something that in particular really a lot of women bear the brunt of, of productivity impacts and employment availability because of this issue. 
uh, as much as, you know, it's 2021 and, um, you know, I'm tread carefully here because I myself am not a parent, so I can't speak to any specific examples, but I know that it is 2021, but still, you know, there are a lot of, um, you know, mothers who are either second earners or they are in a, a situation culturally where they are bearing the brunt of it or just that sometimes natural inclination of, uh, kids to say mum before they say dad yeah. and that is something that I think we need to really look into you know um, if if Australia does go down that remote working path of making sure that the people who are working remotely have actually the space and the mental capacity to do that uh, productively there are definitely household well-being downsides of remote working as much as a lot of people do like it um, if you're a renter in, in, in a big city like Melbourne and Sydney um, particularly for people who live in share homes or who live um, in small apartments, you know, saying, oh, you're working from home for the next um, eight months or 12 months, and that's been the situation in Melbourne. If you're, you know, 24 and you've moved um, to Sydney or Melbourne away from your parents' home and you're renting a $250 uh, room in a house or a $300 room in an apartment and you've hardly got space for your bed and a desk, that's going to have a real productivity impact compared to someone who's got their own little wing of the house. So there's equality issues around remote working that, you know, we do have to navigate that, that weren't really there in the office as much as there was inequality of transport and, and everything else. You know, if you've got more money, you can live closer to where you work, right? But at least your office was the same size. You know, your desk is kind of the same size no matter... Um, which part of the team you're in or who you are. So, yeah, look, there's, there's you know, this having kids in schools is one part of it, but I think there's a, a broader discussion to be had about, you know, the different role that a housing plays in the workforce now that people are more likely to be working from home um, at least part of the time and, and yeah. not everyone's home is the same size. Not everyone's home has that space for an office. Um, there are a lot of people working from their bedrooms every single day and, um, I think certainly, you know, one of the really big impacts that we've seen over the last 18 months, uh, and it, this is quite different to what we've seen in previous recessions and previous economic downturns, is it's, you know, people who have a lower income are more likely to have lost far more money than people who have a higher income. Um, so whether you've worked in, you know, hospitality or the retail sector or any tourism-related or arts and recreation-related industry, not only are you already more likely to be a renter, you're already more likely to be living in a smaller dwelling, you're also more likely to have lost work and not having work to do during lockdown creates those mental health effects as well. I mean, um, you know, I remember even just being on annual leave, you know, during lockdown. It's really tough compared to having something to distract you for eight hours a day. Um, so that is something that I think is going to have really far-reaching effects. But even within, uh, you know, knowledge-based workers who do have uh, a good income, there's um, within those industries there are people who are expected to work from home full-time who even if their income is okay or they're starting out in an industry where their income will eventually be good, that doesn't mean that they can afford a home office space now. I mean, a bedroom, an extra bedroom has never been more expensive in Australia. So, particularly in places like Melbourne and Sydney, where the lockdowns have been happening. So, most. let me stop you on that. Why is an extra bedroom so expensive? Because, so as housing prices rise, um, you know, the, the money that you have to pay in order to rent uh, a three bedroom house compared to a two bedroom house. Uh, in terms of dollars, even if it's the same percentage difference, is going to be higher over time. So, you know, if uh, if a three-bedroom house um, 
back in the day was $100,000 more than a two-bedroom house and now it's $300,000 more, then that means that extra bedroom essentially is a, is a $300,000, you know, extra bedroom in some areas of the city. So, you know, um, when you look at the way that our budgets as households have changed over time, we've had to put more of our money into the housing market, into buying ourselves space and so every square metre of that in a city becomes a more expensive square metre to um, to buy. And particularly um, as rates go down, it's not necessarily, once you've got the mortgage, it's not as bad, but getting to that point is harder and harder and harder. And then suddenly there's all these people that, you know, want to have a comfortable home and they go, if I'm working from home and my partner is working from home and we want to have a kid, suddenly they need a four-bedroom house or a five-bedroom house and, you know, that's three million bucks. So it's really hard to um, to see how sure these things are going to come together. You know, housing used to just be for your, you know, leisure time, for when you sleep and then you go to work. And so you don't have to house your work. But now if remote working becomes expected or if it becomes a real big, really big part of that, you know, post-COVID normal, then the role of your home expands but the but your wage doesn't expand, the uh, the support you have in order to fund that extra role in your home doesn't expand. And that's something that's okay if you've got a lot of um, spare money rolling around, but if you don't, it's really going to be difficult. No, it's not. I, I think that a lot of the sign-on for, and I'm just about to change gears on this, but I think that a lot of the sign-on and a lot of the job shifting and a lot of the deals that are done to bring on new employees does and will include uh, you know, get the right chair, make sure you've got two monitors, do, you know, make sure your internet is set. That's, that's, now, part, that's now part of the package. Now, I, I know that, that that's only a handful of, a relatively small handful of people that, that, that's there, but it's sort of now becoming the norm. I think it's becoming the norm globally. But Adelaide, now it's time to shift. Now, you mentioned rates, you mentioned mortgages, you mentioned all the nonsense that comes with it. Let's stick to GDP growth outlook. So let's look at the big picture. What's your um, GDP outlook for the next year? And with regards to monetary policy view. How I have asked this question numerous times. What does normalization of rates look like? If you could get to that question at any time, that'd be fantastic. But let's just start with your your, your growth outlook and your GDP outlook and, and the big picture for the odds. Sure. So here's where my, my real expertise comes in. <laughs> Ooh, here we go, here we go. Um, stand back. Yeah, yeah. Housing and, and GDP is a, is a little bit easier to talk about than all of those tricky social inequality issues that we will see over time. Yeah. Um, so, look, it, it's not often that I would ever say a 3.3% fall in a single quarter of GDP is not so bad, but after last year when we did have that 7% fall in GDP in the June quarter, 3.3% feels a little bit more manageable. So we're thinking 3.3 for the current quarter. That's really based on Delta. It's based on the fact that over half of Australia is in lockdown right now. Our ANZ spending data shows that when you're in lockdown, uh, the city that's in lockdown spends 30% less um, coming from you know credit card, debit card and, and merchant data. So yeah. uh, that's a really big deal. And then um, so from there, you know, you've also got all of the business disruptions and, and things that come with that. So 3.3 down, but, you know, depending on how uh, lockdowns go next quarter, we could see a 2.4% increase from there and the actual um, overall uh, GDP change for the year would then be positive 1.4. So we're not 
at the moment expecting a recession to happen where GDP is going down twice in a row. Yep. But we are really feeling, we know that the impact of Delta is really huge. Um, when it comes to uh, unemployment, though, we, we think it'll be an average of 5.1% over uh, the December quarter. So, and then go down from there. We're actually still thinking that 2023 will um, be an average of 4% unemployment, which is way lower than we've seen in ages. And so even though we're seeing this temporary lift in unemployment, it's nowhere near as bad as last year. It got to 7.5 last year. And if we included all the people that weren't looking for jobs because, you know, there weren't any. What's the point? You can, you can think of the effective unemployment rate as more like 13%. Yeah. Whereas these days, there's heaps of job ads out there. There's heaps of job vacancies out there. Employers are going to be a lot more scared to lay someone off because the cost and the risk of getting someone back when they want to expand or when they want to bring back workers is going to be a lot harder now than it has been. We don't have, you know, any immigration coming in uh, and every worker across most industries really have more options than they did, not just last year, but more options than they did back in 2019. We, we think of 2019 in some ways as like the golden age where we could like go to cafes and everyone was, you know, doing whatever they wanted all the time. But from an economic perspective, the momentum of 2019 was slow. We were already expecting to see unemployment go up. Everything was slowing down. 2021, yes, we've got challenges, you know, in terms of, you know, your household well-being, your freedom of movement, all of those things. It's definitely, you know, in Not a lot dying. of cases that's worse. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> the economic momentum that's underlying everything's actually going, you know, at a, at a quicker pace. We're, we're seeing more people wanting more workers and um, because a lot of businesses now have adapted to the idea that the government is going to keep splashing cash um, as this uh, as these lockdowns continue they're less likely to let go of people they're more likely to take financial risks we can see that households are taking financial risks not just in the housing market but if you've tried to buy a car anytime recently it's been really you know that's really difficult buying a caravan um, buying a puppy you know people are people are spending money wherever they can to, to make their lives feel a little bit better. Adelaide, spin the wheel. Transitory or not transitory? <laughs> so, look, I mean, oh, I hate to be a stereotypical economist, but, I, you know, I love, <laughs> I'd love to say a bit from column A, a little bit from column B. I think, look, I think structurally over time, inflation is has been getting lower and lower and lower. And so for me, when I see pockets of inflation or I see increases in inflation, um, that are, are really strong and really fast, I would say transitory for that. It doesn't mean that I think that inflation is going to be at, you know, 1.5 forever, um, but, you know, there is some market expectation now that we won't see, um, you know, interest rates above that kind of 2% mark in the very long term. And I really, um, you know, if I had to put my money on it, I would be saying, you know, 2% or less rather than 2% or more in that kind of five to 10 year period. Uh, and that's because inflation, there's a lot more globally, there's a lot more stuff that pushes it down than that brings it up. I mean, oil is cheap. Digitization makes it super cheap to compete between other countries for anything from, you know, um, professional work to uh, physical goods. Um, the fact that we're buying more physical goods than services at the moment, and that's something that we're seeing all over the world, even if even in higher vaccinated countries, we're spending more time at home, we're buying more stuff. We it's, it's you know, risky to plan a trip, but it ain't risky to buy a couch. 
So um, that pushes inflation down too, right? Because the the average basket um, of stuff that you buy is more likely to be stuff that falls in price over time rather than stuff that rises in price over time. So when it comes to looking at what might move the needle on inflation, I think it's really um, kind of if it's something where it can lead to uh, wages going higher, so things that um, aren't tradable, you know, if you're, um, you know, you can buy coffee beans from anywhere in the world and so that kind of commodifies the price a little bit, but you can't buy a barista coffee anywhere in the world because you have to be where the barista coffee is in order to enjoy it. And so, you know, if if we get that nice relationship between wages and all the stuff that you can't really move around, then uh, we do have more of a chance of getting inflation to where it needs to be. But that slice of goods and services gets smaller and smaller and smaller as technology becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger part of our lives. So whether it's a good or a service like you know, services like internet, I mean, you don't have to be down the road from uh, a person selling you a modem in order to get internet from a particular provider, even though it is the service. So I think, um, you know, I think that's something that really structurally keeps inflation down. And and I also think that central banks, you know, there's a lot of pressure on central banks to, to help the economy and help inflation, but they've only got a really blunt tool. And I think that tool was kind of uh, really useful when inflation was high and we wanted to make it lower, but it doesn't seem to be quite as useful when inflation is low and we wanna make it higher. So, you know, our forecasts say that by the time it hits the middle of 2023, we will have 2% inflation uh, and then we will see rates go up, but they're gonna go up really slow, really, really slowly over a really long period of time and they won't get very high. And that's because of all of this stuff that's making it really hard to get a captive audience, which is what you need to put prices up. Like, you know, I'm a captive audience to the coffee that I buy down the road because I'm not going to spend 20 minutes driving to, say, 50 cents on a coffee. Um, but I'm not a captive audience for most goods and services because I can, I have a computer, I have, an, I have a phone, and so I can kind of... And that's really the challenge. Thank you, Adelaide. Uh, Bridge Street Capital Partners, as mentioned before, Sydney-based corporate advisory firm, proud sponsors of the BIP show. Thank you very much for uh, your support, uh, uh, putting together capital market transactions and small cap companies on the ASX, mining, energy, tech sectors, sophisticated investors, uh, get in touch with us or get in touch with Bridge Street's uh, email address that's here, info at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and, uh, and they'll be able to help you out. Now, don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show, obviously, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter for some reason. It's at the underscore Bip underscore show, and we're on Facebook too, again, for some reason. Just search The Bip Show. I have a website, again, for some reason, uh, which is now hosting all the little extras and bits and pieces. Adelaide, um, send me any extra documents that you want to have on there, any views that you've got, and I'll put them on the website. Um, we've got things that are on there. I do a little bits and pieces, and we also got links to the show too. Uh, Google Wheel and Capital, which is what I named it because it was late, and that's what I decided, and follow the links to the Bib Show individually at Colgo, at James Wheel 42, and at Ken Vexler. Sorry, uh, you couldn't be here, Ken. Um, Adelaide, I, I'm not sure if you're on Twitter. I try to make it fun, but 
you know, there's <laughs> only so many ways you can make a chart, right? That's okay. That's it. Somehow I've managed to get through my life without seeing you on Twitter, but uh, I'm, I'm going to absolutely amend that and, and I do apologise. I look forward to having you back on the show, uh, Adelaide. I think that there's some un, there's some unfinished business that's here and you've got a lot more to say, which uh, which is fascinating. So Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Adelaide. Uh, this show is produced by Rick Salter. G'day, Rick, and we'll catch you next time. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. You've got to give us those five-star ratings. They are very helpful. It's really easy to do. But thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.